3: Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Choly, bringing the best of my Times radio show. Uh, we're coming to you live from the Conservative Party Conference uh, from 10 till 1. Uh, you can hear there's quite a lot of lurgy, actually, here in, uh, in Manchester. I've got a sore throat. There's just a lot of conference cold going on. Uh, right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, Michael goes, the levelling up secretary, on whether or not this Conservative Party is now just some 80s tribute act. We take a look at a hundred years of Tory turmoil. Uh, there's a new book out on the 1922 Committee, uh, which is the sort of backbench group of Tory MPs who calls endless trouble and have a habit, more recently, of removing prime ministers. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll take a look at that in just a moment. But before that, it's today's columnist panel. The columnists on Times Radio. And it's Tuesday, so of course we are joined by Danny Finkstein. Hello, Danny. Hello. Hey. I, I, I think that leaderboard thing, that, did you get the person who did Theresa May's signage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, um, so the Times Radio, uh, lead, b- finger, the buzzer game leaderboard, uh, where we're supposed to... Oh, they're, more, they're just falling off. I, oh, it's terrible. I've got a sore throat. The thing, somebody, somebody's going to give me the P45 in a minute. That'll complete the full set. So Danny's here. Also, Miranda Green, Miranda. Nice to see you. Hello. Miranda from the FT. For nice me. to see you. Nice to have you both together because you had quite the ding dong last week. After Danny dared to suggest there was no point to the Lib Dems. And I, I can't help thinking we're sitting here this week, Miranda, asking, <laughs> what's the point of the Tory party?
4: Well, well, you know, they remain the government for now, of course. And as the great Rob Ford, the political scientist of Manchester University, our local expert here, yeah. as we're all in Manchester, was saying to me uh, last week in Bournemouth, actually, I think people have forgotten how volatile the electorate are these days so even though it looks obvious what might happen at the general election next year we should bear in mind that there are strange reversals of fortune and the electorate could suddenly shift in another direction so i agree with you there is a slight sort of fantasietical feeling here at manchester but you never know right you never know and and there are ways in which rishi sunak could find a way back
2: yeah look i'm pretty convinced that they're not going to get a majority at the next general election but despite you know it's also the convention of a governing party so it's interesting to see uh what its spirit is but also where it's heading i think there are signs that would encourage someone like
3: me but there are also
2: certainly signs that wouldn't
3: my slight sense from a lot of the announcements we're going to talk to michael gove about this later they're all a bit sort of small or re-announcements or a bit retro. In fact, this is, this is the Environment Secretary, Therese Coffey, with her big announcement yesterday.
4: We're going further to help farmers and rural businesses by making the most of our Brexit freedoms. Freedom from European rules. Freedom to choose what works best for Britain. And we've already legislated to allow gene editing so that we can design crops that are fit for the future. And my officials are cutting red tape and introducing smarter regulation. Frankly, bent or straight, it's not for government to decide the shape of bananas you want to eat. I just need to assure you that they are safe to eat. So we will be dropping absurd regulations, including the one on bendy bananas.
3: Frankly, bent or straight, it's not for the government to decide the shape of bananas you want to eat. It's the 1980s, (laughs) Daddy. A cabinet minister using their big conference speech to make an announcement on bendy bananas. Okay, so funnily
2: enough. Everyone always thinks the agriculture speech is ridiculous because there's something comical about people <laughs> talking about items of food <laughs> from the platform. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, and and often, by the way. But also, the, it's the, the Liz, audience that, that feels similar.
3: fault because of the famous cheese.
2: Cheese,
4: cheese gate discre- Yeah. Piece. Absolutely.
2: But the, but I think there is anyway, and often and
4: pork products. We shouldn't yeah. let's let's, yeah, let's have, have whole a moment. For, yeah. So it market. is
2: an attempt to <laughs> to kind of um, inject into, and we see that a lot of conference speeches actually an attempt to to sort of John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial into a speech about, uh, you know, commuter trains. And it just, the the, the, uh, the dissonance can often be quite comical. Um, however, obviously, quite a lot of these things do mean more, probably, than the, piece, the big pieces of rhetoric. So they're worthwhile listening to carefully.
4: But to, to your earlier point, though, Matt, about kind of is this a government sort of that's slightly... Given up, yeah. uh, you know, it's a bit sort of work to rule. Conference speeches, it felt felt to me. Interestingly, on the fringes, I've been doing some kind of policy fringes, and all of the conversations end up in the same place, which unfortunately is we better try and get cross party agreement on this so that it can happen. So that doesn't <coughs> actually show a great expectation of this party that's gathered here today being able to take on the ideas that really matter. So they're saying sort go, of like start the conversation on
3: pensions or on climate change. Yeah, or, change or education or reform, education which is or, what yeah, I've been yeah. talking
4: about for a couple of days. And so, and so it, you know, it always ends up in this place. So it feels as if the expectation is we're all here talking to the current party of government, but see you next week in Liverpool where we yeah, really well, need to do a deal.
2: That's obviously partly because there are a lot of people who are not part of the about any political party at a party conference. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, I was actually reassured by that element of it because it is at least realistic. I yeah. have attended Conservative Party conferences where to the external observer, it's completely obvious what the political position is, but nobody else gets it. And you seem like you're living on another planet. And I d- so I find... A degree of realism that nobody's saying i think the conservative Party stands no chance whatsoever of winning but you know and they're probably more optimistic than the situation warrants even now but it's not completely out to lunch and i have experienced periods even when i was you know in like 2000 for example when it was obvious the conservative party was going to lose but the party chairman was absolutely convinced we were going to win the election which was obviously unrealistic so that that i think i think it's it's probably good that they're a little bit more grounded in the reality of what's going to happen but I'm a somewhat more worried about the sort of leakage of cranky ideas for example like the 15 minute city is a conspiracy to make people live in their houses and not not be able to get out those kind of cranky online ideas seeping into mainstream yeah. debate that's a little bit worrying The Nigel Farage and Pretty Patel thing, you know you get people from other parties coming to conferences, but the idea of accepting Nigel Farage as a member effectively like a member of the treated like a member of the Conservative Party through GB News, that is a worrying development. So there are uh, the ability to make Funnily enough, the things about bananas, weird though that is, and the fact that speeches are wor- are workmanlike attempts to address apprenticeships and bananas and <laughs> things, that, things that actually happen, in yeah, real yeah, fact, yeah. or HS2, right? These are actually worthwhile things that, that are, are real things and not fantasy things. I'm, I'm less worried about that than I am about kind of bits of bits of unrealistic politics,
3: sometimes slightly sinister, entering into mainstream debate. But what's interesting about that is that tells us that actually the Tories are struggling to work out how to attack the Labour Party, because whether it's the 50-minute cities, the meat tax, we had Claire Coutinho, the energy secretary claiming that Labour were relaxed about a meat tax, that's just not true. Um, you know, they're sort of having to that make up things that isn't true. and then knock them down. They're not... They're not sorry, Amanda, no, it's no, your no. turn. Go, go. But
2: they're, they're, it's yeah. not true about the meat tax. What, what Minette Batters says isn't quite correct, which is there has actually been a debate about the yeah. tax. It's not an invented issue. It's just that Labour's against,
3: Labor, against it. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. But it, it seemed, it's interesting that in trying to attack the Labour Party, they're having to sort of make up Labour policies and then knock them down again.
4: Well, it, it's sort of... I wondered whether with the meat tax particularly, there was a bit of a kind of uh, Lyndon Johnson stuff going on. You know, he famously said, you know, you throw some outrageous slur against your opponent because you make the bastard deny it. Yeah. And then they've said it through their own words. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. the association in the public mind is with that idea, however untrue it was. But it is slightly desperate. However, on matters to do with the economy it's very, very useful for the Tory party to make the Labour bastards deny it. So actually, I think there's an exception to this, which is, you know, for example, Jeremy Hunt's speech yesterday, although it was slightly short and a bit lacklustre again, uh, you know, 20 minutes for the Chancellor seems crazy to me. He could have gone on much longer and told us some more. But, you know, if, if, if they hammer Labour with the idea that they are still the party of tax and spend and then Labour is increasingly always in a slightly panicky way having to insist that they're not, that probably is quite useful for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on, 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 and so on meat, et cetera, so no, it sounds let, mad. Let's
2: leave meat to one side because, because yeah. the Labour Party has deni- you know, said, Ed Miliband said directly that he didn't yeah. agree with that idea. But let's take the idea of tax and spend because it's a little more complicated. Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer are suggesting that they're not, you know, a party of tax and spend. To what extent do you, Miranda, or me, really believe that that is actually their position? I cannot see how Labour can achieve the broad aspirations of the centre-left, right? You know, moderate, mainstream aspirations, but their broad aspirations, without increasing spending and tax. So, therefore, I don't think that advancing the idea, despite the fact that Keir Starmer is unspecific and you know, to some extent, they're denying that, advancing the idea that that is what the consequence of a Labour government does. It's a difficult one, that, because you are, therefore, defying the fact they're saying, you no, know, we're against it, and you're saying, and the Conservative Party is responding there in favour of it, but despite that, it is actually my strong instinct that if you got a Labour government, that is precisely what it would do. So it, it's it's a legitimate part of the argument. So it, it's, a, it's a it's a slightly more complicated but one than it I seems. Wonder I, think, the, that's right. where the I public, think
3: that's right. Where would where the public on this? Because public services, there's a YouGov poll out today on public services. And across the board, everyone says they're in a bad state. I mean, the, the best that they have get to is about Twenty-five percent say fire services is a bad state, but like eighty-six percent say the NHS, hospitals, GPs, social care, trains, police. So, and people think that you know rich people should be paying more taxes. You know, richy soonaclys, rich mates, That actually, the idea of more taxes to make our public services less rubbish is yes. not a terrible position. No, but, to but be it's in. not
2: Labour's position. No, it's right. not. So this so. is this is a critical point. Uh, It's not Labour's position, despite the fact that they obviously want the votes of a population whose position it is. And I can't see how they square that, except by probably moving towards where the population is. And then it becomes a legitimate part of the argument. Is that actually a good idea when taxes are so incredibly high? I don't...
4: That, that is true. I do agree with everything that Danny has said, and I think it's the right attack for the Tories to make on Labour for that reason. However, I think there's a fundamental problem with Jeremy Hunt saying, as he did in his speech, it's the historic mission of the, of the Tory party to drive down your taxes and to drive down the tax burden, since, as the IFS said a few days ago, this turns out to be the biggest tax-raising parliament pretty much in history or since since records began. And so you're again having this problem that the current set of Tory ministers have to defend a record that is not a good record to back up their argument for voting them in again, right? So both both parties are actually on slightly shaky ground on tax and spend, I think. But I think Matt's point is the right one. If the public realm looks like a mess, Fundamentally, who are the party that traditionally are trusted by the electorate to repair it? And that is not the Conservative Party, and that's the kind of fundamental, that's true, I think.
2: Because Labour will historically drive up spending. So, my view about it is that the Tory part. I, I used to drive my son to school when he was a baby. He would say, oh, to nursery and he would say uh, go faster daddy yeah. and i would say i'll go as fast as possible consistent with safety okay it was a <laughs> joke of teaching him how to speak language and then he after that he would always go from the back of the car go as fast as possible consistent <laughs> with safety daddy <laughs> uh, so i but the but the point's what the conservative party is trying to do obviously is is keep taxes as low as possible consistent with its obligations yeah, yeah. and it's not in fact inconsistent to have been the party that during this period of covid and Uh, during this period, actually, by the way, of Brexit, but during this period of, uh, uh, you know, recently the oil price rises, for the Conservative Party to have seen a big rise in taxation, while still saying we are relatively the party that favours control of taxation over over spending. And it is where the argument really is. And and the the problem for the Conservative Party is what do you do in a situation in which Labour... um, just denies it's going to do that when we all think it probably will. So that that is why they then get themselves into the mistake of inventing other policies yeah. that are plausibly like let's let's face it it's totally plausible that as part of an uh, an obesity and uh, you know downing street under tony blair proposed a fat tax yeah. right it's totally um, plausible it just happens not to be their policy so yeah, i see yeah. how that happens The 15-minute city thing is a whole different thing because that is a wholly invented, slightly bonkers conspiracy theory linked to a number of other conspiracy theories about, say, vaccines, which is really legitimate politicians should not dabble with. So I think these are different graded things.
3: It's a weird thing where we could go into an election with a Tory party uh, claiming they're going to do tax cuts when they're not really. And the Labour Party claiming they're not going to put up taxes, <laughs> but they will. That Both sides are sort of being uh, disadvantaged. Yeah, but
4: the voters are very sophisticated exactly, about that, that right? So they, they, neither of them will get away with it. But, yeah. I do, but your point about all, all the policies that are being thrown out here in Manchester all a bit nuts and also a bit low level yeah. is actually really interesting. Because the fact is the whole conference has spent the last two weeks well actually the whole conference yeah. season has been dominated by the HS2 yeah, exactly. lack of decision and that is partly because it seems to me no one at the higher levels of government has thought what other shiny thing can we throw out for the magpies well, the is, to look at there is nothing else to talk ago,
3: about if they'd announced that it wasn't coming to totally. Manchester it wouldn't have been every question you yeah, know Rishi Sunak did a media round this morning it wouldn't have been every question. Yeah, but, sorry, they, fi- the things, they failed, essentially, the to give us
4: anything else to talk about, which is a real mistake.
3: Yeah. But one of the things that
2: people are making a mistake on with HS2 is that the, the, the assumption is it's the kind of gaff that we're talking about HS2. The government didn't need to talk about HS2. They, they've deliberately raised it because they think it's the right thing to do. Right? Yeah. So the, the one thing with HS2 which we should just remember is they've obviously calculated or decided whether they've calculated or not that this is something they want to talk about because otherwise they don't need to talk about they it they could have just left it as it was it, and it 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 would be they could have just spotlight. left it as yeah, it was yeah. right so they've made a decision which is all part they've actually made the conference slogan, longer term long term yeah. decisions for yeah. a brighter future. So they, they keep going on about
4: hard decisions. Yeah. So it's true, not a gaffe yeah.
2: this thing that the conference yeah, is dominated does, by this big decision. It doesn't
4: mean it's not a mistake though. No that's a different yes. question. Which is a, you know, so but and, this is and, you know that for Andy Street, the yeah. Conservative mayor of Birmingham and West Midlands to say this is effectively cancelling the future for my yeah. region is, yeah. is is not great yes. no yeah. it's a
3: big it's a big dispute between but it's an interesting point you make that the Rishi thinks this is the good right thing to do yes I
2: mean look there are different people, the Ed f- Ball, people Ed, Ed
3: well that's late Ed period, that's
4: late period of Blair isn't no, it you know through gritted teeth this is the right thing for the country to do
2: um, Ed Balls and Peter Mandelson for example opposed to yes uh HS2, whereas Where were they, you know, now? George Osborne... Yeah, but I'm just saying that <laughs> it, it splits people of all different politics, is what well, I mean.
3: Well, um, up next, we're going to go for a slightly lighter conversation. We're going to talk about Nazi memorabilia.
4: Across the UK, on DAB, online, and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. Well,
3: good morning to you. It's Matt Jolly coming to you live from the Conservative Party Conference in an almost sunny Manchester this morning. I've now got a cup of hot honey uh, honey water, which is it's, well, it's transformative. I sound loads better already. Thank you, producer. Mary. I'm still joined by Danny Finkelstein and Amanda Green. Um, both of you doing the fringe meeting circuit, Danny.
2: Yeah, there's, l- there's so many fringe meetings about subjects you probably never even knew. Well, I, I've often le- I've learnt that certain things are political issues which I never even knew were um, anyway t- today I'm doing one which is I think definitely falls into that category I'm doing one on not the sale of Nazi memorabilia as, as listeners will possibly recall from previous panels Uh, I'm very interested in the whole question of collection of Nazi uh, material that's what my grandfather uh, did and how he fought the Nazis was through that so the sale of that material is obviously of great interest to me and the board of deputies has organised a a fringe meeting to draw attention to this and to to discuss how best to regulate uh, the the sale of these items, which, you know, in the context of a general concern, which we were discussing earlier about the spread of far-right conspiracies and um, the the idea that Nazi memorabilia will be a fashion item is concerning, so uh, it's a worthwhile thing to do, even if minor key, but there are lots of minor key things going around the conference hall. What about you, Miranda? You've been
3: you've been fringing.
2: I
4: have been fringing. I love a good conference fringe. It's brilliant. You know, you because they they gather quite often. They're organised by think tanks or, as as Danny says, other organisations, and they gather everyone who's passionately engaged with that particular topic on one in one room. You know, and as a journalist, apart from anything else, it would take you three days probably to track down all those people and, and interview them yeah, about yeah, whatever the topic point. is. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I've got yeah, I've got a full notebook. You know, great quotes, yeah, you know, yeah. which I just have to r- write up now, you know. And, and, and my sort of policy area is education. There were lots of people yesterday discussing the Sunak plan to get people to, t- to, to study Maths to 18, which is a really hot topic in education circles. You know, can this be made to work? Another one of these things where the, the, everyone's anticipating trying to formulate a plan they can then sell to the Labour Party to carry through. Yeah. It's been absolutely fascinating. I love it. It's really where the action is sometimes at a party conference. It's a It's a shame that the public don't get that broadcast to they them much so much. Yeah, actually. Yeah,
3: it's, it's true. And it, Whenever I've chaired a fringe or, be, you know, or a portal, really lively. you always come around just thinking, oh, I didn't know that.
4: People turn up, you know, not quite to heckle. Although I did get heckled at a Lib Dem conference fringe once. Wow. <laughs> it, <laughs> wasn't
3: <laughs> <me>.
4: <laughs>
5: no,
2: it wasn't me. It wasn't,
4: Danny. Although, although I, actually I was embodying your spirit of scepticism about the Lib Dem position on Brexit at the time, which is probably oh, why yeah. the they throw a berry at
3: you. <laughs> 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 it wasn't quite that
4: bad. It was, there was hissing, though, and in sharp intakes of breath.
3: Have you both seen the video of Pretty Patel and Nigel Farage singing Can't Take My Eyes Off Of You?
4: No, and how much do I have to pay you to not show it to me?
2: <laughs> yes, I did recently see Ed Balls and George Osborne dancing to Things Can Only Get
3: Better. Wow.
4: Wow, that's pretty bad.
3: What's the worst thing you've ever seen Amanda?
4: Well, the worst political thing I've ever seen or the most memorable strange sight certainly is when I uh, years ago was was in the beautiful wood-paneled room of the late great Robin Cook when he was Foreign Secretary and he had a funny little cupboard off to the side that was full of all the strange gifts that he'd been given by foreign dignitaries coming to London and he decided to try some of the on for us and so he gave <laughs> us this he gave us this really strange little kind of dressing up box moment of putting on the robes and fabulous a green silk turban from I think somewhere in the stars. <laughs> it was really quite extraordinary
5: Yeah, well,
3: I'd, I'd take that over Pretty Return and Nigel Farage any now, time. while I've both got you here, do one of you want to have a go at the buzz, the, the hand buzzer game? So these are the yep. rules. We've been we've done, Three people have done it so far. Victoria Atkins, the Treasury Minister, is the best. So, there we are. Are we hearing that? Can we hear that? Yeah, very good. Okay. So Danny's going to go first. It's a to, No, you haven't started. You're not allowed oh. to start yet. Go back to the oh beginning. Stop cheating. Um, you get f- five seconds added for every uh, buzz. And um, while you're doing it, you have to recite Rishi Sunak's five pledges. Okay, so... On your marks. Inst- every instant of a... Every time you touch it. Right. Okay. Right. Ready, steady, go. <laughs> That's just cheating. You're just bossing it all the time. No, I think this is... this is. You're not playing by the rules. You said every instance. Uh,
2: right? I believe in rules-based conservatism.
3: Well, you've not <laughs> abided by <So>. the rules. <laughs> That was the rules you, you took, said. You've every taken instance, a trust so there was
2: one instance of touching. You never said how long the your, duration. Your approach to it.
3: games is the same as this trust's approach to the economy. <laughs> and now we're going to have you removed. Miranda Green from the FT, and of course Danny Fink's from the Times. And you can read Danny in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box. Up next is Michael Gove.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: Now, joining me on the step hot footing from the... You've just been on the stage and now you've joined Times Radio. Uh, Michael... Cohen.
0: Oh, at Times Radio, always first.
3: Except not in this case, because you have to... First with the news. What have you just been uh, wowing the crowds with in your speech?
0: Um, uh, I've been explaining to uh, the audience uh, the significant achievements of the last 13 years of Conservative government and then outlining outlining some of our plans uh, for uh, housing and meeting our housing targets in the future um, and also saying a little bit about levelling up.
3: Uh, Well, you're in charge of levelling up. Is completing the leg of HST to Euston in central London, but scrapping the line to Manchester going to help
0: level up the north well uh, you are like so many others speculating about a decision that hasn't yet been taken i think the important thing to stress is that uh, when it comes to leveling up transport infrastructure is important um, and transport infrastructure is not just about uh, linking uh, the great cities of the north with london it's also about making sure that within those cities we improve transport links and we also improve transport links between those cities as well
3: uh, back in march you said it will link through crew to manchester and you thought that was a good idea? Do you still think it's a good idea?
0: Well, I think the maximum amount of infrastructure investment, the better. But it's also important that we make sure that we get value for money. Um, And the Chancellor, the Prime Minister and the Transport Secretary have been scrutinising a budget which has been, I'm afraid, uh, ballooning out of control. We need to make sure that we get value for money for every penny that the taxpayer gives us. And so uh, we're looking at all of our transport spending in order to make sure that we can get them the, the, the most effective deployment of that infrastructure.
3: Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Theresa May, all close personal friends of yours of course, they all say it should they go might. ahead. Mm. Are they wrong?
0: Well I'm, I'm loathe ever to disagree with Boris or with David or with Theresa <laughs> uh, but they while they all have distinguished records in government don't have to grapple with the decisions that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor have to grapple with now.
3: Uh, this time last year, you joined us on the Times Radio stand in probably the greatest ever Conservative Party conference at yes. all.
0: When I when I failed to make it to number 10. You
3: were a mere humble backbencher.
0: I, I was a backbencher, yes. Yes, um,
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> and now you're back in the Cabinet. Back then, I asked you whether you agreed with your old friend Boris Johnson when he said benefits should rise in line with inflation. This is what you told me then.
0: My overall belief is uh, Boris's argument was right. I would need a lot of persuading to move away from that, but I I wouldn't want to prejudge an argument that was put in front of me before the argument was made, because in crises you sometimes have to do things and embrace policies that would, in other circumstances, be deeply unattractive. But my basic position, my starting position is, yes, Boris was right.
3: So you said that you thought benefits last year should rise in line with inflation. Do you think this year that benefits should rise in line with inflation?
0: as I said last time, I think I'm not going to prejudge or anticipate the tough decisions that the Chancellor and the Welfare Secretary have to make.
3: Now, no, last year, you said you agreed with Boris Johnson that it should rise and lie with inflation.
0: But I also said before that that I didn't want to prejudge. But I offered the uh, a general opinion. But on this occasion, I'll be more reticent. But do you, have you changed your mind since last year? I've changed my position. <laughs>
3: But you yeah, but that just means you're in the cabinet. You must, Are you making the case in the cabinet for increasing well, benefits the, in line with inflation?
0: Part of the privilege of being in the cabinet is that you get the chance to lobby for or to argue for certain positions. But coming uh, with that freedom um, and with that ability to talk directly to ministers, there's also a responsibility to keep those conversations private. Um, and that's what I fear I'm going to have to do. OK,
3: let's move on and talk about some of the actual announcements that have been happening in this conference. Your Uh, successor as Education Secretary, is a job that you had for a long time, Gillian Keegan. Her big announcement yesterday was banning mobile phones in schools. Good idea. Well, I know it's a good idea. You talked about doing it in 2007, 16 years ago. You then announced it when you were Education Secretary. Gavin Williamson announced it twice when he was Education Secretary, in 2021 and 2023. Even Matt Hancock managed to announce it when he was Culture Secretary in 2018. Why is that the education sector, after 13 years in charge of the education system, why is a re-announcement of a re-announcement of a re-announcement of a re-announcement of a a re-announcement the big announcement from the Education Secretary?
0: It's not the only announcement from the Education Secretary. Throughout the year, you've seen Gillian delivering uh, uh, enhanced... Degree Apprenticeship Access. We've expanded the number of free schools in our country with a particular emphasis on new free schools for children with special educational needs. As I was reminding the conference, we also this year recorded the best results of any Western country in the international league tables for reading. Um, This year, uh, the schools that are getting the most students into Oxford and Cambridge That's not the be-all and end-all, by the way, but it's still a good measure of success. Uh, Some of the schools that are getting the most students in are state schools. Uh, Brampton Manor, uh, Harris Westminster, the London Academy of Excellence, that didn't exist 13 years ago. So, again, uh, the policy that, uh, that Gillian announced is an important one, but it's only one of a range of things that we're doing in education. And our record in education, as Adam Bolton Uh, was being reminded (laughs) on Sunday uh, is uh, one of uh, relentless improvement. It's
3: interesting actually because I was struck listening to you on the show with Adam Bolton at the weekend where it feels like education is still the thing that really drives you, you're most passionate about. It's one of the few success stories that the Tories actually have, and that's why, you, as levelling up in housing sector, you keep retreating back to education.
0: Not retreating. I'm very proud of what we've done yeah, in okay. education. And it's not just me. Um, it, it was the leadership shown by David Cameron and George Osborne, yeah. the continued leadership shown by Nick Gibb, and Gillian is taking it forward, but also in my Which speech... taking
3: forward the annual announcement about <laughs> banning mobile phones in schools.
0: It's an important announcement. But the, <laughs> Do you think you'll be announcing it again next year? Uh, 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 well, text me uh, or WhatsApp me. <laughs> and that. Um, But the critical thing is also, in my speech, uh, which I had to keep to ten minutes, I also referenced some of our other successes in government, um, our environmental successes, uh, the fact that we're leading the world in the way in which we, we've reformed farming support, the fact that we're the only country, I think, in the world to have reached the 30% of our oceans free of uh, exploitation, the, you know, the 30 by 2030 pledge to rewild our seas. We're the only country that's met that. And, of course, we're leading on offshore wind. I also reference some of the other changes that we've made, uh, particularly because yeah. of the effective targeting of, of, of welfare, We've now got a million more people in work than when we came to power in 2010.
3: You mentioned the environment. That was a job that you did as well as Environment Secretary. Mm. Your successor as Environment Secretary, this time, uh, used her big conference. Therese Coffey's big announcement was that uh, she said, uh, bendy or stra- bent or straight, the government should not be telling you uh, what uh, how bendy your banana should be. Um, so she's going to scrap the rules. Is that banana too straight? Is this the big issue that the government should be addressing? How bendy your bananas are?
0: Um, I, I, my own view is yes. that I should not be pronouncing on uh, how straight someone should be.
3: Right. What about my banana?
0: Or, or something should be.
3: Right, OK. Um, do you, is it... We had James Cleverley as well, the Foreign Secretary, had yes. a speech at a fringe where he was, he was claiming he was going to go to the Falklands because it wouldn't be safe if there was a Labour government. So we've got bendy bananas, loony lefties, saving the Falklands. This whole conference feels it's like a sort of 80s tribute act. There's nothing... There's no big new ideas here. It's reannouncements and it's bendy bananas.
0: Well, uh, again, you, you were presenting at the time, but in the speech that I just gave, I outlined some of our plans on housing, some of the significant changes that we're going to make in order to regenerate uh, town centres and to uh, provide people with a, a, a route to home ownership. It was also the case that Steve announced as Health Secretary a significant expansion um, of medical school places. And uh, it was also the case that Michelle, as uh, Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology, also announced additional support for the work that we're leading in artificial intelligence so of course um, a skilled journalism will involve picking up on a, a stray comment here or a, a, a fruit-based reference there <laughs> uh, and that's fine um, but in government, as but I think Danny Finkelstein pointed out, yes, you've got to care about everything. Yes, you've got to care about everything from uh, what, uh, of from, from the the, 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 the uh, low hanging fruit to the big bananas.
3: So the thing is, no, millions of people care about getting on the housing ladder. Yes, you did have a plan for that. I do. And then no, you did. Have, this is the problem. In thirteen years of government, you have a plan and there isn't a plan. You have a target and there isn't a target. People just think. You've had 13 years to sort this out. Why do I believe Michael Gove now on housing when it's the opposite of what you've said before, it's the opposite of what you said before, or it's just re-announcing again and no, again No, not at again. all,
0: not at all. So you did, you
3: had a national target, and then you didn't, because no, you gave in to your Tory MPs rather no, than people who can't buy a house.
0: We do have a national target, and we've we've met it. We have two national targets, actually, 300,000 a year, and a million... Which you're not, which
3: all you're we're not meeting.
0: No, no, we're not meeting that one, but we have met the target of a million new homes, or we're just about to, in this Parliament. And also, uh, we're spending uh, uh, billions of pounds on our affordable homes program, specifically in order to make sure that we can have more homes for social rent and more homes for uh, shared ownership, as well as outlining plans, which I did in July, for significant investment in London to extend Docklands East, in Leeds, in order to regenerate the city centre there, and also in Cambridge. Uh, to make sure that that city You're has not a building,
3: You had a target to build 300,000 homes with local targets imposed. There was a rebellion of Tory MPs and you tore that up. You put, you put keeping oh. Tory MPs happy before people who want to buy a house.
0: No, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. What we did is we have kept those targets, but we've made sure that when local planning authorities come forward, if there are strong environmental reasons for them to say, we need to protect the green belt or we need to protect an area of outstanding natural beauty, then the planning inspector will Take that into account in assessing what the revised housing target would be. Technical stuff, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, of course, people uh, wanted to depict it in a in a particular way. That's fine. I understand how people create a narrative in politics. But no, what that, Michael, that
3: is just what happened. No, you had a top you had a, tar- a top down target. There was a Tory rebellion, and you got rid of it. No,
0: no, 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 no. That that is the media narrative. That is not the truth. I'll tell you one thing, though, that is true about well, housing. I'll
3: tell you what, let's talk about truth. To we don't have very long, Michael. Neutrality.
0: Truth. the truth there, yep. we were bringing in plans which would have unlocked 100,000 new homes. Yep. Labour voted against them. Keir Starmer allied with the Duke of Wellington yep. in order to stop us building new homes for well, young you, people.
3: Let's talk about truth, then. Why is the Energy Secretary making up that Labour wants to tax meat?
0: I don't think Claire is making up
3: anything. But the Labour Party have, are not, do not have a plan to tax meat. Well, Which she said in a speech in the conference it's why Labour is so relaxed about taxing meat.
0: Well, that's not true. We know that Labour always in government... No, that's not true, though, is it? We know that Labour always in government... It's end not up, true. ...end up taxing uh, uh, more and taxing more widely than they said that they would. We also know You know, you can't just make things up. I know you can't.
3: You can't stand in a party conference speech and say Labour want to tax meat when that's not true.
0: Well... Uh, the truth is that Labour ha- are the party of high taxation, they've been relentlessly the party of high taxation, and it is also the case... No, I tell that you what, there's,
3: Michael, there's, there's one party which should be the party of relentless high taxation, and it's the government that you're serving in. Well, the, the highest level of taxes... See, I don't know how you can go into an election talking about Labour are going to put up taxes, when as a Conservative government we've got the highest level of tax
0: ever. Well, several things there. Firstly... It's Labour who've always levied a higher tax burden than the Conservatives. Secondly, the reason why we, now. the reason why we have taxes where they are now is because of, and I know that people are bored of hearing it, but it is true, and that's why it is repeated, because we have uh, uh, the consequences of the worst pandemic for 100 years yep. and the biggest conflict on European soil since 1945. So these are inescapable pressures on our economy, but Conservatives if you compare Conservatives, for example, in local government with Labour and Liberal Democrats, Conservatives um, always offer lower taxation. Okay.
3: Um, I've known you for a long time. I think even before uh, the 2010 election our paths cost a lot. You spent a long time trying to get the Conservatives back into a place of being electable. You thought big thoughts about education. You introduced them in the face of opposition. Some people liked them, some people didn't. I feel like you're somebody who who wants big, you know, government to do big things. Mm. And this feels like a very silly party conference, dominated by a row about uh, a train line, which you said was a good idea, which now might not be a good idea. Bananas, made up meat taxes. Isn't it all just a bit Do you just wonder what you're doing? No.
0: Um, I uh, was able, as I mentioned earlier, to run through not just 13 years of significant achievement, but also to lay out uh, long-term plans for two of our, our biggest challenges. Um, uh, the levelling up white paper, which my department published, was one of the most substantial analyses of how to overcome uh, geographical inequality in this country. And the steps that we're taking, some of them distinctly unglamorous, but some of them very high profile, giving more power to regional mayors, investing research and development cash uh, across the United Kingdom, that is big potatoes. That is an ambitious agenda.
3: Let's, um, just fine, because I'm, I'm slightly conscious of time. Sure, uh, sorry. Uh, the last, I know you've uh, some experience of Tory leadership contests. At the last one, you didn't throw your hat in the ring. No. You said that Kemi Badenoch was the future of the party. Yes. Is that still
0: the case? Well, I, I, th- I think Kemi's great. Absolutely brilliant. Outstanding minister. Uh, the party took a, a, a view. Um, we now have Rishi as our prime minister. Um, in the choice between Liz and Rishi, with which party members were eventually presented, uh, I said that I thought that Rishi was the better choice. Uh, Uh, a majority of my fellow party members respectfully disagreed with me at the time Uh, but I think now that that decision, I've got some things wrong in the past as we know, that decision (laughs) was at least vindicated. I told you so is what you're telling the party members I am (laughs) not saying that others might say that, I'm just saying that I think we're all in a much better position with Rishi no disrespect to Liz Uh,
3: What about Svela Bhavman? Uh, Bhavman? Kevin Maynard's been very critical of uh, Svela Bhavman and her comments on the multiculturalism in the UK, do you uh, and we've had a, a succession of Tory MPs and ministers saying that she's just completely out of line, what Suella Barbera was saying. What do you think?
0: No, Suella's as a friend of mine, and I think she was making a very important point. I think that uh, we as a country welcome tens, and, and indeed recently hundreds of thousands of people, into our country, many of them fleeing persecution from Ukraine, yeah. Afghanistan, She said
3: multiculturalism had failed. Well,
0: the particular thing is, different people at at different times either mean different things or infer different things. Mm. And uh, the the substance of Sobella's speech was, if you're going to absorb, and we should, people from abroad who are fleeing persecution, you need a common culture, you need certain common liberal values, the rule of law, respect for free speech, and so on, which are non-negotiable. And that, I think, is a critical point. And and, and funnily enough, it is a point that's also been made by Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, and a variety of other figures.
3: Um, I don't know if you've seen the video. I know you're a man who likes dancing. I do. Have you seen the video of Priti Patel dancing with Nigel Farage? No, I haven't. To I can't take my eyes off of you. Mm. Um, what's the worst thing that you've ever seen, if you haven't seen that video already?
0: Um, <laughs> the worst thing I've ever seen is Keir Starmer trying to answer a question on Brexit.
3: <laughs> right, very good. You said that while fingering my banana. Now, <laughs> would you like to have a go at my steady hand game? Mm. Victoria Atkins is top of the league table at the moment.
0: I think I'm going to fail. Well. Because... It's very straightforward. It's a
3: steady hand. You've been a steady hand uh-huh. on the government tiller for such a long time.
0: Where do I start? Uh, you
3: start on the left uh-huh. and move gradually to the right like everyone does. Uh, not yet. I'll tell you where you can go. Uh, every time you buzz it, uh, you'll hear that noise. We add five seconds. The quicker you get round it, the better. Okay. Uh, but while... Wait, I haven't told you you can start yet. While you're doing it, you have to recite Rishi Sunak's five key pledges.
0: Okay. On your marks, get set, go. We are going to halve the rate of inflation. That's one. We are going to. Stop that's, a, that's a buzz. Stop the boats. I think oop. that's two buzzes. We are going. Oop, that's to another grow buzz. Britain's economy. Well, that's three pledges. We're going that's to That's a lot of buzzes. That's a f five buzzes. Reduce the debt. That, yeah, that's good. That's six budget buzzes. And we're going to seven budges in the NHS.
3: Right, very good. I'm gonna say that eight eight buzzes. Let's have a round of applause to Michael Gove. There we are. A slightly sarcastic, sort of cricket round of applause there. <laughs> so what, what's the total time? One minute twelve. Where does that put him? Bottom. Second for bottom. S- second for bottom. bottom. So there we are. Second for bottom. Yes.
0: So basically sort of the Burnley. <laughs> Leveling up, actually Michael Gove
5: there. Now, a little bit of our discussion on 100 years of Tory turmoil. The threshold of 15% of the parliamentary party seeking a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister has been passed. So the message today to Theresa May that she has lost her moral and political authority her brexit deal is
1: dreadful
4: we're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half
1: wonderful years we will shortly be heading to Buckingham Palace to see her Majesty the Queen where I'll tender my resignation as Prime Minister
3: I think it's a shambles and a disgrace I think it is utterly appalling
5: I can announce the parliamentary party does have compete. Yeah. <laughs> You have sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God,
3: go. Margaret Thatcher, John Major, William Hague, and Ian Duncan Smith. This is starting to look like a habit inside the Conservative Party. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box. Hasta la vista.
1: Baby, thank you. Crazy.
3: Wow. I mean, that's a lot of Tory turmoil, utter carnage there. Well, this year marks the formation, a uh, century uh, since the formation, of the 1922 Committee of Conservative MPs, who have then spent the last uh, 100 years um, overseeing quite a lot of that turmoil, uh, telling their leaders to come and go as they please. Known for a long time as the men in grey suits, they can end premierships, and set the direction of the government. But is it them that hold the real power in Conservative politics? I'm joined by the party historian Philip Norton, Lord Norton, whose new book, 1922, Power Behind the Scenes, tells the story of this mysterious political force. Good morning, Philip. Good to see you. Morning. Uh, And we've also got Sir Graham Brady, who, listeners will know, has been the chair of the 1922 committee uh, since 2010. Good to see you, Graham. Hello. Uh, Nice to have you. Uh, Here, Philip. Let's stop. Uh, First of all, why are we marking the centenary of the 1922 Committee in 1923?
1: In 2023? well, um, because it was founded in April 1923. Its name comes not from the year of its formation, but from the class of 22. It's formed by MPs first elected in the November 1922 general election. And as the months progressed, there was one in particular realised well, there's no induction for MPs, we've no idea what's going on, let's get together. And so it's a sort of form, they formed what was in effect as health help group to make <laughs> sense of what's going on in Parliament, how can new members have an impact, take part in Parliament's life. So it really took off from there, it was a very limited existence, it later opened up membership to others, because otherwise it would have withered away in the fullness yeah, yeah. of time. And then uh, 925 agreed to open up to all Conservative Prime members conservative pri- private members this is significant because it's, it's still private members it's a, it's, it was set up by the MPs not by the party f- formally so informal body and its private members so it's not technically the parliamentary party because it excludes the leader always yes. and ministers when in government so it, it's really the voice of the backbenchers of the Conservative Party. Had a chequered history, it was fairly limited in scope and impact before the Second World War, it was formation of a national government that really helped make it because it was the authentic voice of conservatism mm-hmm. at a time when you know, it was a national government, nobody could speak uh, otherwise for it because everybody was united publicly yeah. but you had a forum behind the scenes where dissent could be absorbed. And it really took off from that. So what you're talking about in relation to the leadership, that's really, um, from that period onwards, it influenced the party, influenced policy, but its main impact in terms of the party leadership is since it acquired the power to elect the leader in 1965, then in 1975, the power to re-elect, in other words, get rid of the leader. Yeah. So it's really taken off from that. It's the power that they've got to elect and nowadays to remove a leader before then you know, the men in grey suits going to tell a leader it's time to go. Yeah, it never happened. Yeah, it, that, that, That's a myth. They were more likely to be told to go by the equivalent of men in white coats. That's <laughs> the, they're doctors. Um, so it's really developed over time. And in the
3: grand sweep of history, in 100 years of the 1920s committee, has there ever been a chairman as famous as Sir Graham Brady? <laughs>
1: um, Uh, No. Um, (laughs) Well, it's quite interesting because in the early years, you had fairly long-serving party leaders, but some chairmen who would come and go fairly short tenures, uh, whereas the recent history is (laughs) long-serving chairman Michael Spicer and then Graham Brady, who is the longest-serving. When leaders have a more greater turnover than used to be the (laughs) case so it's an inverse relationship between what existed pre-war and what's existed in recent decades
3: so so, Graham what what do you see as the role of the 1922 committee and is it different to everyone's perception of you popping up with increasing frequency in an oak, a wood-panelled room to tell us whether or not the government survives.
5: Uh, I, I think it is different because, understandably, people often have the impression that our main focus is um, assassinating Conservative Prime <laughs> Ministers, whereas actually our main focus is to try to make it work. and We try to make sure there is as good and open a channel of communication as possible between the leader and the backbenchers, between members of the government and the backbenchers. We try to make sure that leaders are well advised and well apprised of what the mood in the party is, what the colleagues will be prepared to wear and what they won't. And if uh, prime ministers, leaders of the party take account of that, in my view they're more likely to last longer uh, than if they
3: don't. Could you give us an example of a, th- of a time where, as a result of your representations,
5: you have managed to... To steer a, a prime Minister into a, a new position, well, I mean I think there are certainly times when I think of the executive meeting with David Cameron. uh, in the run-up to the uh, Scottish uh, independence uh, referendum where we were making the case that the party needed to be doing a lot more than it was at that point. Uh, And I think it might have um, helped to save the day at at that point because the party then engaged more and we certainly put much more effort into campaigning uh, at that point. So these these things do crop up, whether it be me in private conversation with a, a leader or the executive as a whole or the officers meeting with the leader. Um, we do have some very useful and constructive conversations.
3: Um, Philip, across the the, the, the whole century as we're Mm. talking about it, was there a time when relations were especially good between Prime Minister or leader and, and the 22 or when was it particularly bad?
1: Well it sort of varied not just between leaders but during a leadership as you can imagine because at certain times the party's riding high, leaders popular, I mean Macmillan when he first came in gave the impression he was always popping into the 1922 committee because he'd used that as a platform for the leadership, got it but then of course towards the end as the years progressed ran into trouble yeah. um, and, and so the mood uh, turned against him, so it's it's been quite ve- you've and again with Margaret Thatcher she started off very well, was keen to keep in but then the longer you're in office to some extent you become more detached she did. Occasionally you've got leaders like Edward Heath who never really got on with the 22 or, because or really
3: anyone. Any, well, I was going to say he was, much,
1: he was interested in policy but not very good on personality yeah. and didn't really mix Had a, a, there was an attempt by the chief whip to organise a dinner between the executive of the 22 and the prime minister and um, to bond, uh, and it proved to be a total disaster. Um, So it has uh, uh, varied, but a good leader is someone who needs to keep their own side. Keep uh, the troops happy. Absolutely. So you need to have that capacity, not just for the public performance in the chamber, but informally, mixing informally with members, but at the same time, keeping the party on board. And so the 22 committee is absolutely crucial for that role in relation to leadership, but as Graham was indicating, the 22 goes far beyond that in the range of functions it fulfills. Some may seem quite mundane domestically to do with the party, things like that, but very important and providing an and outlet for backbenchers knowing they've got that outlet.
3: So go on then, uh, of the many Prime Ministers that you've, you've dealt with, Graeme, who, who was the best to deal with and
5: who was the worst? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose, as, as Philip says, it, it, sometimes it changes over time. <laughs> and you know, I, I think probably my uh, working relationship with Theresa May got uh, rather more difficult as we got into the uh, period leading up to the end of her time in office. And uh, it was that
3: essentially because actually you were just bringing up bad news every day, that, that, that more and more people were unhappy... Yes, but, uh, you know, deal wasn't going but, but
5: again, I, you know, I, I also did try uh, to um, oil the wheels and make the uh, Brexit process happen uh, more readily by proposing an amendment that was known at the time as the Brady Amendment that was going to uh, demonstrate that the British Parliament would vote for some kind of settlement and uh, would prove wrong all the naysayers who said there's simply no settlement that the House of Commons will vote for. So, you know, I did try to help and, uh, and then maybe things got a little bit more difficult towards the end. So Ellen Bravman has
3: just walked past us, gave me a little wave. Um, while she's just walking past Graham, do you agree with her that
5: multiculturalism has failed in the UK? I think this is an important debate to have. I was reflecting to uh, somebody <laughs> the, the, the other day that you know, I think you, you might possibly look over the channel at the uh, performance of the French alternative approach and think that we've done rather better than they have.
3: I've heard from quite a lot of Tory MPs actually that they're very unhappy about her speech. Is that the sort of thing they come to you about?
5: Uh, Absolutely everything. And and it's both people might talk to me directly, but also I think very important to stress over the 26 years that I've been in the House of Commons and for much of that time I've been on the 22 executive, either as chairman or in other capacity, uh, the executive is normally genuinely representative of the whole spectrum Of opinion in the parliamentary party, which can make it quite a a difficult and lively group of people to to chair at times, but it also means it's genuinely worth listening to. And certainly taking the executive to meet with uh, a prime minister, I've had uh, political secretaries say after the first meeting with the executive, you know, my god, this really is a representative body, isn't (laughs) it? And I don't know what they expected, but uh, it's a board race. Absolutely.
3: Um, Philip, explain to us about the process which the public will be most familiar with. The letters going in. Yes. this. How did that come about?
1: Well, it, it, this is what's created now as almost an invitation to struggle within yeah. The party, and that's part of the problem. Because I said, in 1975, there was the power to re-elect, so members can get rid of a leader. Now, in 1998, the rules were changed so that the parliamentary party, the 22s in control of the arrangements, the chairman is the, the returning officer for the election, but provided that the parliamentary party sort of selects two candidates for the membership, so eliminating ballots to narrow it down to two. Yeah. But the final ballot, of course, you have three so the top two go through, but the person who comes second in that ballot could have only, say, the third of yeah. the, the MP's vote. So Ian Duncan, the first time that was used, Ian Duncan Smith got the votes of about a third of the parliamentary party, which put him through to the final two. Um, with Liz Truss last year, she got 32% of the votes in that final ballot. Yeah. So you've got somebody going for the the membership, who the membership then elects as leader, but that person's it's never doesn't command a majority of the MPs. Um, so that is a problem, which Andrew led some recognition nights when she was the candidate against Theresa May. Now she withdrew from the contest ostensibly because an interview she gave to the Times mentioned, you know, Theresa May not having children. But before then she'd already contemplated withdrawing because Theresa May got an absolute majority of MPs votes in the final ballot. So there's always that tension there of a leader being leader by virtue of the votes of the party membership, but never Demonstrating the full support of parliamentary party, so it's never been a ba- you know, final ballot where most MPs have voted. Therefore, feel yes. committed to that yeah, 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 yeah. candidate. So that, there's that instability written in since that change of the rules. Yeah. But it, and that's I was going to say, and then. The parliamentary part has the power to remove the leader. I think that's the most important thing. Now, not so much the maker as the slayer (laughs) of leaders, because 15% of the parliamentary if they call for a vote of confidence, putting in letters to the chairman, so you end up with a chairman being... More better known than ministers because journalists keep coming and asking we question, know how many letters a, you've got yes, all asking the a question and never answer
5: are they physical letters or can people email them in? Uh, it can be anything as long as it's verifiable I think yeah. as long as I know it's genuinely from yeah. the, the, the member uh, concerned. I was, I was going to say though that um, Uh, I do think it's important that the party members, when they vote in a final selection of two, should know the strength of feeling and the weight of opinion in in the parliamentary party. They can then make their own judgment about it. But my advice uh, to successors into the future would be to hold a final indicative ballot uh, so that the party members will at least know where parliamentary opinion uh, lies on the issue. So on the final
3: two, before it goes to members or after? Absolutely, before Before it goes to members. members. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Over the years, when you've read all the stories about so many, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 letters are integrated,
5: are they ever true? No. Um, <laughs> and you know, as I said before, only I have known. Yes. And I, you know, I think it's really important. It's a very difficult secret to keep. And I don't think it's fair to impose that on too many people. Yeah. Uh, so I've been the only person who's known. Of course, there are people sometimes who are very good at trying to work out who will or will not have yes. uh, submitted letters. And so this uh, process can result in quite accurate uh, estimates being made. But again, what they never know is whether people have subsequently withdrawn a letter or indeed, as I've had, on uh, at least one occasion, I think probably more, where somebody has said publicly that they've submitted a letter and it was never submitted. Yeah. In fact, I had once a colleague who um, said publicly he'd submitted a letter when he hadn't submitted it and then said publicly that he'd withdrawn it when it had never been submitted in the <laughs> first place. Was that uh, Andrew Bridgen? Uh, I, I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> but it, uh, it, it, it does make it impossible, I think, for anybody outside to have an accurate sense of where things are. They might have an idea of a trend and they will know that sometimes pressure is building, but they can't know. Give us a sense
3: then finally of the mood in the 1922 committee and backbench Tory MPs right now about the, you know, it's the third uh, successive party conference with a different Prime Minister. It's going, I mean, it's fair to say better than last year in that it's not all falling apart. But what's the mood amongst Tory MPs, particularly when lots of them, they look at the polls and they think, I'm going to be out of a job in 12 months.
5: I, I think the mood is is probably not just better than last year, but better than you might uh, expect. And I think part of the reason for that we've obviously just reached the inflection point where Rishi Sunak, having spent 11 months demonstrating calm and stability, and improving competence in government, has now started to announce uh, new policies. And we've also seen the beginnings, it seems of a move in the opinion polls and we've seen some of the polls, one of them recently showing a, a reduction in the Labour lead from 20 points to 10. It's early days but if we have more of the same I think it's entirely possible to see how we claw back that uh, position and as off Labour's opinion poll lead has been done before, as we know. Yeah. Uh, it's entirely possible for governments or oppositions to go in, even into election campaigns with a substantial lead and then not see that. Um, <laughs> That's Theresa May, Absolutely, we'll remember well. Absolutely. So I think the mood is, is quite positive and we feel as though we're at a point where things are starting to move.
3: And how many letters have been calling for a vote of no confidence in Rishi that? Ah, um,
5: as you know, I never comment well, on I that I thought
3: I should ask. Uh, Sir great, Brady, really good to see you, and uh, Philip Norton, Lord Norton, uh, author of the new book 1922, Power Behind the Scenes, telling the, the history the Twenty Two committee and that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes but for now for me Matt Jolly it's goodbye